This morning's sermon is a sermon for children, and it seems stupid to have them have to hear it secondhand from their parents when they could hear it, hear it firsthand from the horse's mouth. The reason I've asked for the children to come back in is that there was a uh, terrible tragedy yesterday. A young man who grew up in this church and greatly loved by all of us, but particularly greatly loved by me. I had a very special relationship with this young man. Uh, <laughs> so special that one year I did something with him I've never done with any of my own children. And that is I did a science project with him. And this young man, who, as I said, I, I loved very much, yesterday died in an accident. And the tragedy about this young man's life is he was a young man that spurned discipline. And about two months ago, another young man in this church had spent the day with this young man and was bragging to me about how much fun they had. And this other young man told me that he and this young man had been going over jumps in their four-wheelers at 80 miles an hour. And I looked at this young man in our church and I said to him, I said, you realize you will die. And it sobered him a little bit. Well, today he is alive and his friend is dead. And I was going to start a series on the book of 1 Corinthians today. But my thinking is that when God gives us an object lesson, we shouldn't all act as if it doesn't exist. My thinking is that the pulpit should not be the place where it seems disconnected from life and every other part of life should be connected. And so if God has given us a warning, I think all of us should take it. Do you understand what I'm saying? And there are some of you here this morning who spurn discipline. In fact, in the first worship service, I, I talked about uh, Jesus being asked by his disciples about the tower that fell. Remember the tower falls and it kills a bunch of people in the Gospels? And Jesus applied that story to the lives of his disciples by saying to them, do you think that the people that were killed in that tower falling are worse sinners? And then he said, I tell you, unless you repent, you also shall likewise perish. And so, in the death of this young man today, we all have a call from God. And we have the wonderful opportunity of repenting. And it's a privilege because we're alive. The Bible says it's a pony dumbed man wants to die and after that the judgment. And, you know, you can go through life thinking that life lasts forever, but it doesn't. Look at me and you know I'm closer to the grave than most of you. I have gray hair. As I knelt, I noticed that my knees were not flexible. And that's one of the many signs that we do die. I want to read, it's the beginning of our time of studying God's word today, Isaiah 46 to 8. A voice says, call out, and then he answered, what shall I call out? Now listen carefully. This is what he was to call out. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And what a precious message from the Lord telling us that you young women, you young men, filled with life, the virility of masculinity, the fertility of femininity, the beauty of hair, 
I could go and read to you from Song of Solomon, and it will describe to you your beauty in words so graphic that you'll all blush. Life is a beautiful thing given to us from God. But what the Bible says here is that as soon as the beauty is given to us, it begins to wilt. It begins to fade. The Bible doesn't tell us it fades because God is subject to a dualistic universe where there's cosmic negatives and cosmic positives. And so you're just like subject to cosmic negatives and so your beauty fades. What the Bible says is that what? It says that God's breath blows on us and we are grass and we die. And so those of you who are young, those of you who are old, the end of all men is death. One of the things I believe very strongly in is taking children to funerals. I also believe in having open caskets. Because there's a conspiracy in America today that every truth that is painful and dirty should be hidden. And so death is one more painful truth and it's hidden. It's put in the hospital behind curtains, in the intensive care unit, closed casket. When I was in Wisconsin, I lived right next door to the funeral home and I noticed the tendency um, to discourage people in the wintertime from even going to the graveside service. You know, the funeral director would say, you know, we'll just take the casket to the grave and bury it. You don't need to come. And can't you imagine that the time will come when, you know, we'll all go to the funeral home and, you know, get some of that laughing gas they give you when you go to the dentist. And some guy will get up and read poetry and everybody will talk about how righteous the person that died was and how they're headed for heaven and how nice Jesus is. And we'll all be smoking dope or on laughing gas. And really, that's a good metaphor for the way our country is today. We're all smoking dope. We're all stoned on laughing gas. There's no death. There's no rebellion. There's no truth. There's no judgment. There's no heaven. And there's no hell. Imagine. It's easy if you try. And so God has given us a precious gift today, and that's the death of a young man and the flower of his youth. And the central reality of those of us who loved him is that that man spurned discipline. And you say, how could you say such a thing? I tell you, look, when I was his age, I spurned discipline. So I recognize it. Why I didn't die the way he died, I have absolutely no idea. I should have, by all rights. I told the first congregation, the first service, that when I was his age, one time I was hitchhiking on I-80, and I was wasted on uh, something far beyond dope. And I woke up the next morning, I'd spent the night sleeping on the sideline of I-80, sleeping there. My body full stretched out with my head on my backpack, fell asleep, spent the night there. Any semi who had slightly veered to the right during that night, I wasn't wearing white and I wasn't standing up. And I would have been roadkill. And I'm just telling you one of the many, many times... I could tell you of many other sins. I was a young man who spurned discipline. I don't know why I'm alive today. But I do know what God requires of me right now. And that is to speak the truth to you. And so I will. And I trust that God will make you wise for salvation. So this is a sermon for youth. It is the, titled The Dangers, The Hazards of Youth. Okay? And I want to go through some of the dangers. First, there's physical danger. 
some of you know that I believe in having fireworks be legal for children. And the reason I believe in this is that I think that children should all have the privilege of having danger when they're young and the damage can't be very bad. You can lose an eye, you can lose fingers with little fireworks. The reason I'd like that to happen is so that the fools are weeded out and learn young and don't get drunk and put a bunch of their friends in their car and kill them at the age of 19. They have a couple fingers missing and they don't kill their friends when they're drunk. Today, the dangers that we face are much, much worse than the dangers in the past. And the reason is largely has to do with technology. Today, people who shouldn't be driving can get a license. People who have no respect for life, no respect for law, can aim a car. What Rita Cuffey used to say, she, she learned to drive when she was like in her age, and she said, you know, I, I just, she said, I just get in the car and I just kind of aim it. <laughs> The good thing is she never went faster than 30 miles an hour. <laughs> I just kind of aim it. And so we think about cars, we think about motorcycles, and we think about four-wheelers, ATVs. And there's a lot of physical danger in the world today. And you, you're subject to danger. And your body will die. If you don't wear a helmet... You will die. If you, wear, if you drive a motorcycle, you will die. If you get drunk and drive, you will die. There are sexual dangers. How much of my time as a pastor is spent dealing with the predatory actions of older women and men against children? Here's something that should be obvious. If we feed our minds on pornography, then we will be predators against children. It's the truth. It's the truth. And so little children today grow up in homes where they can't go to sleep without wondering if their stepfather's going to come in their bedroom and get naked with them. And you don't like me to say that, and I say, hey, here's an idea. Let's have the church be a place that is vigilant to keep that from happening. Vigilant. Do you know what the word vigilant means? The word vigilant means on guard and perfectly resolved to make sure on my watch that doesn't happen. Okay? And so when my children were growing up, sitting at the dinner table as we eat food and drink and have napkins in our lap, here is what I would say to my children. If any man or any woman ever touches parts of your body that they're not to touch, you tell me. And you scream bloody murder. And you yell and you kick and you punch and you gouge his eyes out. And if he ever tells you not to tell me anything, that's the precise thing you are to come directly to me and tell me. And if you can't tell your father, you don't have one, come to me. Because... I will be vigilant. Go to an elder. Go to an older woman of this church. We will be vigilant. Do you understand that? And you say, oh, look at him coughing a posture. This is no posture, people. <laughs> Let me tell you. You are not to allow anybody to be a predator and to destroy you sexually by touching you. Don't do it. That's it. Don't do it. Parents, it is your duty to protect your children from this. Because we live in a very dangerous society where all around us are people who are completely immoral and will take every opportunity they can. When I was a young boy, I had a constant stream of homosexuals picking me up when I hitchhiked. Hundreds of times I had homosexuals trying to get into my pants. 
hundreds of times. Did you hear me? That's who picked up hitchhikers. And it's much worse today. So, parents, you have an obligation to have the con- conversation I just described with your children. And then you need to view your own relatives with an eye to see them as potential predators against your children. Look at your pastor. Look at your elders. Look at the people that lead Wednesday night youth group. Everybody needs to be somebody that you look at and you go, can I trust them? Do you understand this? We care about the bodies of our children. We care about their sight. We care about their hearts. We care about them. And we don't want them to be destroyed by predators, right? So, vulnerable physically, vulnerable sexually, vulnerably, vulnerable mentally. It used to be that teachers and professors were paid to instruct in truth and to discipline the minds of our children such that they would know truth and love it. But it's the very opposite today. Today, most of the people who teach you are going to try to keep you from recognizing truth and embracing it. Now, I'm not saying that they won't teach you that two plus two equals four. There's always a vehicle that carries the deception. And the vehicle, good deception, always depends upon most of what they teach you being right. But you slip in things that are wrong, and they're right next to things that are right, and your guard is down because they just told you two plus two is four. So when they tell you that all truth is relative, and they just taught you two plus two is four, you think, well, whatever all truth is relative means... It's a construct that allows 2 plus 2 to equal 4, so it can't be that dangerous. Do you understand that? And listen. Today, in our schools and in the university, we are taught that truth is relative. We are taught that everything is a function of politics and power. We're taught that inclusivity and pluralism and diversity are the highest values. And truth can only exist insofar as it does not usurp the place of primacy of diversity and inclusivity and pluralism. Pluralism and diversity and inclusivity are the highest good. All right? And insofar as whatever you hold to as truth, whatever you care about doesn't violate the Trinity... Okay, you are allowed to hold it, but any truth that comes up and attacks the trinity of plurality and inclusivity and diversity is immediately attacked. And so you can hold to truth as long as your truth says there is no truth. Uh, In other words, the only truth is that there is no ultimate truth except Can't we all get along? Because that's what diversity and inclusivity and pluralism represent. Getting along. We're in such a diverse society, we have to get along. Can't we all get along? And so Christians, we, by our very nature, are destructive of of of, of of the public square today. You understand that? Because we hold that all the gods of the nations are idols. The Lord made the heavens and the earth. Now, you want to talk about an America-destroying statement, it's right there. All the gods of the nations are idols. The Lord God made the heaven and the earth. And so the minute you say that, you have absolutely violated pluralism and diversity and inclusivity. And it's not that Christians can't get along with Muslims. We can get along fine. It's not that Protestants can't get along with Roman Catholics. We can get along fine. Except when they tell us that we have to act as if it doesn't matter whether you're a Muslim or a Christian, whether you're Protestant or Roman Catholic, and then the whole game is up. And so think about this. This is what you're taught. You're taught to say, I believe, not thus says the Lord God Almighty. No, 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 you must not say that, but rather I believe. 
Because the minute you said, I believe, or even better, I value. You see, the minute you've done that, you've made a personal statement. And everybody's allowed to have their personal idiosyncrasies. As long as you don't say, thus says the Lord God Almighty. And so we're vulnerable physically, we're vulnerable sexually, and you're completely vulnerable intellectually because you haven't been taught to reason. You haven't been taught to use logic. You haven't been taught what it says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that word, Word, is ordering principle. It's not just a little W-O-R-D. In Greek, it means ordering principle, logic, truth, reason. I don't know what's going on with me here. And so you're vulnerable physically, vulnerable sexually, vulnerable mentally, and vulnerable spiritually. Do you know why professors and teachers don't teach you truth, try to break you down so that you don't believe that other religions are headed for hell? You know why they teach you that? Because in their churches, their preachers have not preached. That's why. If preachers in America today would preach, you would be protected. When little children are abused, pastors and elders do not discipline the abuser. Brian, you're in the practice of law. Is what I say true or false? It's true. Where is David? David, you're in law enforcement. Is what I say true or isn't it? I defy any of you here to say that the church is known for protecting her little children in America today. What happens is we cover it up. I hear these stories again and again and again and again. And so you're vulnerable physically, you're vulnerable sexually, you're vulnerable mentally, and you're vulnerable spiritually because your shepherds do not protect you. You know how it says in Psalm 23, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me? Well, <laughs> do you know what a rod and staff are? You know, have you ever been around a flock of sheep? Sheep are known to be dumb. Nick, you could tell us all about the rod and staff. I don't know how to describe it. What would you say about the rod and staff? They're like, I mean, you never used a rod or staff, right? Would you use a dog? Would you use the dog? In other words, who disciplined the flock when they were straying? Just the fence? A dog or a whip. And so, thy dog and thy whip... I'm serious. They comfort me. You know, it's interesting. We were talking recently about... Oh, man. I was talking to a man last week, asking him to give me counsel about how I should relate to a certain relative of mine. I just absolutely no idea how to relate to this person. None. I just, I've tried my entire life to relate in a way that would protect this person's soul. And I just don't know how to do it. And so I was with an older pastor. Oh, he's, he's my age. He's a man I really respect. And I was saying, how would you? You know what he asked me? He asked me whether when this person was growing up, whether this person's father disciplined this person. And I never thought about it. And I thought, and I thought, no. And he said, well, then this person, uh, the problem is that they're angry at their father for never disciplining them. And then you think of Hebrews where it says that fathers that love their children discipline them. And so this person's life and their sin are a function of not being disciplined by their father. Do you understand that? Because they're convinced their father didn't love them. Is this something that's confusing to you? Is it confusing to you? Do you understand that a child that grows up without the discipline of their dad doesn't believe their dad loves them? Is this hard to understand? 
I'm, I'm asking a real question. No, it's not hard to understand. Have you ever made the mistake of talking to a black man who grew up under his grandmother or mother about his mother? Where was his dad? Who knows? But don't you dare speak about his mother. How does he know his mother Wilson? Or his grandmother? Well, for starters, she was there. But for second, you bet she disciplined him. And so, physically, sexually, mentally, and spiritually, your parents, your pastors, your elders, your Sunday school teachers have abandoned you. And so, you are completely vulnerable. All the people who have an obligation to protect you have betrayed their calling. And there's a conspiracy among all authority not to discipline our youth. Does this make sense to you? Now, I'm not saying that you're completely without discipline. If you show up with a cigarette, they will discipline you. If you don't have your seatbelt fastened when you're driving down, what's the name of Indiana Avenue, I've been there next to the police officer as he points to cars at the stop sign there and pulls you over and gives you a ticket. But if he finds out that your stepfather is getting into bed naked with you at night, he will do nothing about it. And so, physically, sexually, mentally, and spiritually, you're surrounded by danger. The legal protection is non-existent except for all the small laws. The big ones, you're totally on your own. When you're a, a child still at a minor age, you can have an abortion. You can kill your unborn child and you can hide it from your parents. The law is simply not interested in protecting you except at such places that society has decided it rises to the level of an impeachable offense, principally smoking, seatbelts, and littering. And that's what matters. Parental protection is non-existent. Do you know how many times I have counseled women whose fathers have sexually molested them and their mother has known about it and she has done nothing? You know, right now, all of you are sitting there thinking, we don't want to know about this. And I say, how on earth are you going to repent and be who you need to be as a father and mother if you don't hear about this? How are you going to grow up to be godly wives unless you know this is the state of America today? A woman has a choice between protecting her marriage, such as it is, or protecting her daughter. And you know what she chooses? Do you know what she chooses? She chooses her marriage. And then spiritual protection. When pastors find out about it, I said it earlier, we cover it up. And if you put yourselves in our shoes, you'll understand why we cover it up. It shouldn't be difficult to understand. Can you imagine the mess of trying to confront somebody who is a predator against his own flesh and blood, and he's a good, upstanding churchman? Can you imagine that? It's nasty. You know one of the reasons it's nasty? Because inevitably the man's a member of some other church. It's not often he's a member of this one. Generally, men that are predators don't want to sit under this kind of preaching. They leave or they don't come. And so predators of other churches have upstanding reputations. And so you find out what they've done and you go to their pastor or their elders. And you know what always happens? Tell them, David. Yeah, they get mad at you. Physical, sexual, mental, and spiritual danger, and the legal and parental and spiritual protection is gone. All right? 
In other words, there's a conspiracy against between all those that have a fiduciary obligation to not fulfill the obligation. Now, what does that mean for you? All right. Number one. Flee rebellion. Flee rebellion. If you have the ability of finding a father who will discipline you, find him. Does that make sense to you? That's real father hunger. Real father hunger is seeking discipline. It's not seeking a pat on the back and a kiss on the cheek. It's seeking discipline. Because not until you have a father who disciplines you do you have one who loves you. Does that make sense to you? Benny? Makes sense, doesn't it? You got a good dad, don't you? And so what? And so, Benny, you're safe. You're safe. He won't let anything happen to you, will he? No, no, no. Flee rebellion. Find a father who will discipline you. Now, does that apply just to Benny? No, he already has one. What about those of you who have grown to an age where you don't have one? What about those of you living in a home where your father won't discipline your mother? Disciplines you. Go to your father and tell him that he's not disciplining you. And that you feel like he doesn't love you. And you say, well, I can't do that. Because he'll then scream and hit me. And I say, well, if he's a member of this church, tell the elders so they can discipline him and then he'll discipline you. Because that's what elders are for. Elders are to discipline your father, so he will discipline you. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Don't rebel. Flee rebellion. Seek to be under authority. Find a church where there is some commitment to authority. It'll be defective. It'll be stinky. It'll be... Although, I just got a bunch of breath mints from Mike Bowles. Um, it'll be fat. You know, it'll have an attitude. I, I got an email from a guy this last week. He, he was asking me to forgive him because he hated me. I have absolutely no idea who he is. <laughs> I really don't. He may be here. He may not be here. Didn't recognize the name, but he hates me. But he, he, he was apologizing and asking me to forgive him for hating me. And I'm like bored. Everybody hates me. That's okay. What I want you to do is when you leave this church, I want you to look back on me with love. That's all. And if while you're here you don't love me, that's fine. Because, you know, you've been, you've been desensitized to health. <laughs> you think that what's sick is healthy and what's healthy is sick. The other thing I'd say to you is if you don't like authority, look at the children of the pastors and the elders here. Look at their children and see if their children love them. What you should do, if you want to know whether you can trust me, is listen during the service. And sometimes what you'll hear is, Papa! You ever heard that? That's my grandson. And he just saw me. And in the middle of the service, he's calling for me. And so that's a good, healthy sign. It must mean he likes me. And you want to look at your elders and pastors and you want to see that your elders and pastors are loved and trusted by their daughters. If some of their daughters can't look at men in the eye, and if they avoid physical contact with them, don't go to that church. <laughs> Make perfect sense, right? Not rocket science, right? Okay. Run from rebellion. Look and find churches where the children of the leaders are in submission to them and love them. And then you find that church, give yourself to that church. It's a good church. Okay. Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. This is the Bible. 
So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. Now, it sounds terrible to us, but that's in Scripture, and because we're Christians, we can look at that and say, it's beautiful, because all of Scripture is beautiful. Remember how it says that we eat it and it tastes sweet like honey? The Word? So what's the truth there? Well, the truth is that by one man being killed, the entire community all of a sudden has a submission complex. Because every child is thinking, my parents could take me outside of the city and I could be dead. Now, let me ask you this. Rebellion today, is it punished with death? And everybody says no, right? Forrest is shaking his head, no. But do you know it is? It is punished with death. But no human being will be a part of it. It just has to happen from the hand of God. Do you understand this? What do you think AIDS is? I'm not talking about those who have gotten AIDS through no fault of their own, but those who have given themselves to sexual immorality die. And so rebellion is punished with death. God says that the rebel will die. God says that the fool will die because he's a fool. And it's not a hypothetical construct. It really happens. And really, if I were to go around and, and call out every single one of you, I could point to every single one of you and say, you should die, 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 and I should have died. And still should die. So the point is not to single certain people out and say, unclean, unclean. The point is to make your eyes see, your ears hear, your brain understand what God is doing in this world because it's a tiny picture of what will happen at the judgment seat of God. Where every single deed you have ever done will be opened. Do you understand this? You know that the Bible says that we will be judged for every idle word. And so, the whole point of this is for you to see that God is in the business of judgment. This is what God does. This is what Jesus did. Jesus was a great dividing line through all men when he was alive. And the ones that ended up in the goat side killed him. Apostle Paul, everywhere he went, he was a great dividing line. Every preacher is a great dividing line. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, so it can brush your hair. So it can give you a background. Now, separating between joint and marrow. Okay? So, flee rebellion... And parents, if you have a child who is out of control, bring them to the elders, and we'll take them outside of the city gates and stone them. No, we won't do that. But what we will do will be intense enough with that child that I guarantee you that child will not treat your wife like that again. And isn't that good? Shouldn't a mother be safe in her own house? <laughs> you know, shouldn't a mother be safe in her own house? Shouldn't mother be safe in her own house? She who had her body ripped apart and who had you at her breast, should she not be safe in her own house? Can't we return to protecting mothers? And so, yes, if your child's out of control, bring that child to the elders. And the elders will deal with him. And I, tr I, I promise you, remember, I said at the very beginning, I did the science project. Can you understand how me doing a science project with somebody was me disciplining him? <laughs> oh, great. Pastor Bill is going to help me with my science project. <laughs> It was just loads of fun. 
No, don't worry, Nicholas. Your dad is not thinking of having me do your science projects. Okay. Flee from rebellion. 1 Samuel 15.23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. Sorcery. That's how evil rebellion is. Number two, run from the pleasures of a moment. There are a lot of things in life that are sinful and that are very, very pleasant. Doing drugs is very pleasant. Fornicating is very pleasant. Cheating is very pleasant. But the consequences of the pleasures of a moment spread over a lifetime are absolutely catastrophic. And so if God has blessed you with a teacher and a professor who are disciplining you right now, a professor that's good enough to actually discipline you, a voice professor, you know, uh, give thanks to God and submit to it and don't, don't steal pleasures. Trust God to give you the pleasures that you need in the time. Does that make sense to you? In his time, he will give you what you need. Humble yourself under his mighty hand, and in due time, he will lift you up. Okay? So don't steal pleasures. Um, flee from sexual sin. Sexual sin is... Absolutely destructive. I remember when I was about 22 reading in a magazine, a youth pastor saying, if you go to hell, there's a large chance that the reason you're in hell will be because of sexual sin. And you say, well, that's simplistic. And I say, yeah, but there's a lot of truth to it. And so run from sexual sin. It's all around you. Taylor was describing to me how at his school, it's just like completely boring whether you're gay, bi, hetero, blah, blah, blah. Some sports, the whole sport is known to be a haven of people that are like bi or gay, you know. It's like today, the sins that in Scripture are called an abomination, those sins are boring. I was explaining to, to Taylor that sex has lost all its horror and all its beauty to the young generation. It's just a yawn. And it wasn't the way it was when I was growing up. And what you want to do is you want to reclaim both the horror and the beauty of sex. And by God's grace, he can, he can restore that to you. you. Those of you who are young, if you're pure sexually, the horror and the beauty are a gift of God to you. And if you stay on the straight and narrow path that nobody else takes except you, God will give you the beauty. He'll give you a husband that's absolutely faithful to you and that adores you. And that's what you want. He'll give you a wife who is pure and who is fertile and submissive. And you go, I can't believe Pastor Bailey said submissive. And you go, hey, it's what Scripture says all the time. Why shouldn't I say it? That's what you pay me to do. So you got your money's worth. You know, I'll take a large Coke. <laughs> I love to be the one that gets paid to say what Scripture says. Because don't you go through life all week wishing somebody would say what Scripture says? And so here Sunday morning we get to have our own private ceremony. Isn't that pathetic? And you'd never dream of inviting your friends here because you want it to be private. You don't want them to know that women want to be fertile and submissive and beautiful. I mean, if we ever uttered the word fertility on the campus of IU, why all hell would break loose. <laughs> what a twisted world. You go out to an apple orchard and you want it to have apples. <laughs> I mean, it's just so twisted. Oh, no. 
run from a callous, hard heart. Hebrews 4, 7 says, He, speaking of God, again, fixes a day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. When I was a young man, I once heard a sermon about the effect of silencing a conscience and how it has a cumulative effect and it destroys the heart and the soul of a man. And ever since then, I've had this image of taking an iron that's hot, you know, for linen or cotton, you know, and it's full, full heat. And you take it and you put it on your arm. And your whole arm, all the sin, all the skin is singed or burned. And that arm might recover some of its flexibility, right? And right when it starts finally to heal, you take an iron. And then you do that again and again and again. That's what pornography is. Do you understand? And pretty soon, your wife will never please you. You know why? And no longer can anybody other than a lie who's been airbrushed, photoshopped, that's what every woman on a computer has been. Okay? None of them are real. You can't smell them. Today, 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 if you hear his voice, what? Do not harden your heart. Because the time will come where having grieved the Holy Spirit, God will be done with you. Do you understand this? He will be done with you. He will give you what you want. And you will be left with women who don't exist. Or a woman, you will be left with a man who doesn't exist. The man of your romance novel. Your soap opera. Always loving to talk with women. Such a man doesn't exist. And if he does, he's probably homosexual. Honestly, honestly, generally men only talk with you until they're married. And then they stop. So, stop having fantasies about men that don't exist. If your husband talks to you, praise God. Stephen and Zebra are perfect. Stephen comes home and says, Honey, how may I help you? And Zebra says, Sweetheart. Well, never mind. <laughs> they actually are perfect. Did you know that, guys? And all their children are, well, all their children except Nicholas are above average. <laughs> okay. People flee, flee from the lie that death will never come for you. Death is going to come. And you should be prepared to die. Back in the Puritan times, uh, they always used to cultivate an awareness of death. Did I say in this service, yeah, I think I did at the beginning, that children should go to funerals? I said that to you. Okay. Uh, cultivate an awareness of death and don't believe the lie that death won't come. A couple other things and we'll be done. Number one, hold tightly to God's word. Okay? Listen, it is absolutely impossible for you simply to flee pornography or to flee romance novels. You can't do it. Have you noticed that? You have to love God. And love drives sin out. Okay? Does that make sense to you? So it's not enough for you to try to have nothing to do with sin. You have to love God. And loving God is to love obedience and to love his word. And so if you have a problem with pornography or if you have a problem with, with flesh, okay, the lust of the flesh, here's how to deal with it. I was a newly married man. I was at UW-Madison. And you think IU is bad. Madison is much worse. 
and there's a place called Bascom Hill, and you have to walk across it and through it and down it and up it. Anybody been to IU or UW? Okay, so you know, you guys know what I'm talking about. Bascom, you know what Bascom Hill is? Do you? It's that hill that goes up from the Union. Yeah, it's, that's Bascom Hill. Okay. And all the sidewalks that cross it. And, and so here I am, a young married man with a child, and I'm walking Bascom Hill, and it's springtime, and all the flesh done sprung. I mean, like, women's body parts are everywhere. And so I'm thinking to myself, if I look at women's flesh... I'm not loving my wife. I'm not loving my daughter. I'm not loving God. I'm wicked, and my life is over. Right? Men, right? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, no, not the kid. Well, some of you are honest, and you know what I'm talking about. And I can't stop it. I, every day I walk down it, and I think to myself, I shouldn't be looking at these women's bodies, this flesh, flesh pits. And then one day, it occurs to me that when I'm walking down Baskin Hill, what I should do is I should memorize scripture. Radical thought. So I have this little three-by-five card, and I write on it Psalm 1. And as I walk down Baskin Hill, I'm memorizing, those of you who have done it, Nicholas, you need to memorize Psalm 1, okay? Will you do that for me and then repeat it to me soon? Please? Thank you. Blessed, come on. Blessed are those who walk not after the counsel of the ungodly, nor, come on, stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the flesh pits. His delight is in the law of the Lord and on the flesh. He meditates day and night. No. On his law, he meditates day and night. He and his wife, Mary Lee, and his daughter, Heather. She'll be like a tree that bringeth forth its... Oh, no, don't say the word. We don't want that. That bringeth forth its fruit in its season. His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Including soccer. Including soccer. Not so the wicked. The way of the wicked The wicked shall perish. Okay? Memorize scripture. Pick a text that is like a, van a cross in a vampire's face for your sin. Whatever your sin is. If your sin is bitterness, you know, memorize a scripture condemning bitterness is showing a fruit of it, you know? And guess what? As I memorize that scripture and I walk down Baskin Hill, guess what? It was like the minute a coin drops in the box, the soul springs free. <laughs> that's Tetzel at the Reformation. The indulgences, that's what was said. Rome taught people that the minute they put a coin in the box, the soul sprang free from purgatory. And so that's really what happened to me. My soul was free of the lust of women. Completely free. Isn't that beautiful? I love the Word of God. So memorize scripture. Um, Joel. Where's Joel? Joel Huck. Hey, come here, come here, come here, come, come on, come on. Don't think about it, just come. <laughs> come here. Come on, 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 come on. This is Joel Huck. All right. What's your name? Joel Huck. Joel Huck. Joel Huck has 
Gifts. All of you have gifts. What's your gift? What are you very good at, Joel? Soccer. Okay. So Joel Huck recently was selected to be on the Olympic Development Committee or team. Okay, it's it's top team because he's good at soccer, right? And how exciting was that for you? Very exciting. And so Joel was talking to his mother. And Joel has a good mother. You remember I told you how Joyce has rebuked me for the way I was raising my son, Taylor, and what a precious rebuke that was. I told you that last week. So this is his mother. Okay. So what did your mother say about this soccer team? She said I couldn't go because the practices were on Sunday. How did that make you feel? Upset. How upset? Very. And so what did you ask your mother when she told you you could not play soccer? Mm. You don't remember, do you? Mm-mm. She said no. And then here's what he asked her. Are you ready for this? He said, Mom, is there soccer in heaven? There's soccer in heaven. How do I know there's soccer in heaven? Because in Psalm 37, verse 4, and I'm going to ask in this service what I asked in the first one. Is there anybody here that knows Psalm 37.4 by heart? Do you? Anybody here? I want all of you that know it by heart to raise your hand high. Come on. Come on. All right. Now, one of you stand up and yell it. You see, guys, it's a big shell game. The world promises you everything, and it will deliver nothing. That's Satan. He is the liar. He's the father of lies. He'll tell you you have to marry an unbeliever, or you'll never be married. He'll tell you that you can't survive the pain without the drugs. And then he'll tell you you can't survive life without the drugs. He'll tell you that you can cheat and get a good grade and it won't affect your life. He'll, he'll lie and lie and lie and lie and lie. He'll tell you that if you discipline your son, that he will surely die. But God says, discipline your son, he will not surely die. But God says, delight yourself in him, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So Joel is told he may not be on the Olympic development team. Right? And Joel's immediate question is, is there soccer in heaven? Isn't that beautiful? It's absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. Because Joel is being trained that his citizenship is not here. And he has a home in heaven. And let me tell you, the soccer, I wish uh, Joyce or Wayne were here because I remember the discussion. Elliot, tell us the discussion right after that because you're the one that said it. <laughs> Joyce, your mother, answered. Do you remember what she answered? Yeah, or there will be something else that's so incredible that you won't miss soccer. At which point, the Elliot said, <laughs> what Elliot said was, I hope it's B. <laughs> A being soccer in heaven, B being something that's so incredible that you won't miss soccer. 
Elliot's not on the Olympic development team. <laughs> oh. Listen, people, God is merciful. Brothers and sisters, he gives himself to those that humble themselves. He gives himself to those that humble themselves. And if you're a rebel today, do not harden your heart. Repent. Love discipline. Love discipline. You know, one of the best ways I have of telling whether or not you're doing well with God is I look to see if you love me. And if you love me, I think you're doing well spiritually. Now, I didn't say like me. I said love me. And you know why? Because I, when I preach, always discipline you. And if you're godly, you love that. You come to church to be disciplined. Imagine going to Lawrence and he gives you a benevolent smile and says, everything's good. And you say, but you didn't open my mouth. And he says, everything's good. But you didn't take any x-rays. Everything's good. You wouldn't pay as, as a dentist if he did that. And so when you come to church and you get disciplined by the pastors and elders and the Sunday school teachers, you go to, you go to the fold on Tuesday night and you get disciplined. If you love the people that discipline you, that indicates that your heart is good before God. It indicates you love God, because God is the Father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And so what I want you to do is I want you to learn to love the people that are faithful to you and disciplining you. Don't resent them. So many of you, you're twisted so that you hate the people that discipline you and love the people that pander to you. It's like, no, you know, gong. Yank them. Bad. Love the people that discipline you and hate the people that don't. Or don't hate them. Despise them. Well, don't despise them. Run. Okay. Let's pray.